1986, the film Rawhead Rex was released to scathing reviews and disastrous box office receipts. While it was disappointing to the producers and the distributors of the film, it was incredibly disappointing to the film's screenwriter who had adapted it from one of his own short stories. This screenwriter was novelist Clive Barker, who decided that for the next film he would be involved in, he would be the creative in charge. And that film was based upon Clive Barker's novella, The Hellbound Heart, which was first published in 1986 in the Night Visions anthology series. And it is the film we are here to talk about tonight. It is 1987's Hellraiser. Hellraiser. Here's a movie that you never seen. The map is some ninjas or a crazy death machine. There'll be smiles. There'll be tears. You won't watch a movie for about eight billion years. It's time for death by video. Time for death by video. And now the show will begin. It's the by video. Hello. I'm Phil. I'm Kit. And I'm Graham saying welcome back to another episode of Merry Movie Mayhem as we dive into the legendary classic horror film. And I can say that with because now it is like 35 years old, Hellraiser, written and directed by Clive Barker. Cliven Barker. Mm-hmm. So Hellraiser was always the movie that scared me the most as a child in the video store where I would see it when I would be brave enough to walk into the horror movie section and see oh, there's this guy with pins in his head and his name is Hellraiser, apparently, and I would be like, ah, and, and run away. Occasionally, I would look at the back of the box and just see all kinds of weird awfulness, and it would still affect me, and so I couldn't watch it. Um, guys, do you remember Hellraiser from when you were a child? Ish. Like, I never watched any of the Hellraiser movies no. as a kid. I remember, like, the trailers for, like, the later sequels, like the third one in particular. Oh, Hell on Earth. <laughs> yeah, Hell on Earth. Um I think that's the one with the CDs. Yep. CD throwing Cenobite. Um, I've never seen it. I just know a little bit. Um, it's fun. I remember the ominous video boxes, and I've seen, remember, like, the screenshots of, like, skinless people, and mm-hmm. I was I was too much of a coward to uh, approach any of those Hellraiser movies. And yeah. There's been... I, didn't want, I don't think I would have been scared by them, but I don't think I would have been able to wrap my head around what... Mm-hmm. those movies we're doing yeah there's a there's a there's a lot of stuff going on in those movies yeah. um like i said it's based on clive barker's novella the hellbound heart uh and there are some slight differences between the novel and the and 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 a major one as well so i mean the the smallest one is that the puzzle box isn't called the, the lament configuration as it is in the movie it is called the le shard i can't do french names Configure Lemon Chard configuration, which is named after the box's creator. Uh, Kirsty isn't Larry's daughter. She's actually a friend of his from work who has romantic feelings for him. Mm. This is in the book. Oh, and also Larry's name is Rory. Also, the Cenobite in known as Pinhead is a female in the book, and she's also referred to as the engineer, and she is not the leader of the Cenobites. That would be Butterball. Um, Could be. Yeah. And the, the ending of the novella is a little bit more open-ended. I mean, like, the ending of the movie is kind of open-ended, but the ending of the novella is basically the Cenobites leave Kirsty the puzzle box to watch over until someone else seeks it. 
and she sees the reflections of Frank and Julia in the, uh, the glow of the box. And she wonders if it's possible that there are other puzzle boxes out there that could open up to paradise realms where Rory might be. Um, so the inspiration for the novella and I guess the movie came from Clive Barker's time in the 1970s where he was working as a male prostitute. Um, it was a brief period. Uh, his experiences doing this made, made him want to tell a story about good and evil in which sexuality was the connective tissue. Um, the sex is kind of toned down in the first Hellraiser movie and it's like in the second, in part, from part two onwards, there's no sex pretty much. Um, I mean, there is in part three, but it doesn't actually uh, have anything to do with, um, uh, with, uh, with the actual tying it into the story. Um, but so the look of the Cenobites was inspired by S&M clubs, specifically Cell Block 28, which is in New York City, which is where people would get pierced for fun. Um, so, um, I'll just do a quick rundown of the cast before we get into the movie. Claire Hagen stars as Julia Cotton. Uh, she's had a long, long career. She's still acting to this day. She's currently acting in the show, The Worst Witch. She's also been in Ready Player One recently. Uh, and she is of course best known for Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2. Uh, but she hates horror movies and she's never actually seen Hellraiser or Hellraiser 2. Wow. Watch them. Ashley Lawrence stars as Christy or Kirsty Cotton. And, uh, she's also had a long career as well. She's still acting today. Uh, she's going to be in the new season of Creepshow next year in 2021. Uh, she's also mostly a painter right now. She does paintings. If you've ever checked out her Instagram, it's pretty wild. Andrew Robinson stars as Larry Cotton. He was best known for playing before the Scorpio Hellraiser. Killer. Yeah, he was Scorpio in uh, Dirty Harry, which is basically oh. like their version of the Zodiac Killer. And then he also played the good Kardashian in um, Kardashian, sorry, in uh, Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. Oh, that's Andrew Robinson, of course. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I didn't, uh, I didn't include that. I'm actually watching Deep Space Nine um, r- right now. Garrick is the character he plays in a lot of episodes. Was prominent in uh, the last one I watched. Man, oh man, of course that's him. I see it now. But of course the Cardassians Cardass- mm-hmm. uh, wear a lot of makeup, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So Sean Chapman stars as Frank Cotton. Robert Hines as Steve. Doug Bradley as the lead Cenobite, a.k.a. Pinhead. Nicholas Vince as Chattering Cenobite, uh, who goes on to be later known as Chatterbox. Simon Bamford as the Butterball Cenobite. Grace Kirby as the Female Cenobite. And Oliver Smith as, the, as Frank Sands Skin. It should also be noted that outside of Claire Higgins, Ashley Lawrence, Andrew Robinson, and Doug Bradley, pretty much every single other actor in the cast was redubbed because they shot it in England and it was initially supposed to be set in England. However, uh, New World Pictures, who was releasing it, thought that it wouldn't be as marketable if it was a British set film. So they, they basically convinced uh, Clyde Barker to redub all the actors with American accents. Damn, that, that makes sense. I was wondering about Frank mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. the voice of a god. Yeah. So the film opens with Frank uh, searching for the puzzle box in, I guess, China or somewhere where he's, he's buying it from a Chinese... Uh, Morocco. Over in North Africa. Yeah, oh, okay. I think Morocco, that, that kind of Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somewhere, you know, where in the 1920s it might be exotic and weird, but in 1986 they would have MTV. So he um he gets the the puzzle box aka the lemon configuration, takes it to his family home in England, uh and solves the puzzle and sem- uh, summons the Cenobites. Um so Frank's character is that of a hedonist, he can never get enough and he's always searching for like deeper and deeper pleasure. Um 
And it, with the Cenobites, they are basically pure entities of sadomasochism uh, where they can't tell the difference between pain and pleasure, which is why they eviscerate the people that call them, at least in the first film, in the second film and onward. And especially in the third film, they just become straight up demons. Um, but, uh, but he summons them and he gets ripped to pieces. And once his body has been completely eviscerated, Pinhead finishes, like uh, switches the puzzle box back and they disappear from the house. Where do we go from there, Phil? Uh, yeah, so, well, like, Pinhead, you know, like, he's basically piecing together, like, the ripped-off parts of uh, Frank's face. Mm -hmm. And that's how the house gets put back together. And then we're introduced to um, Julia and uh, the miserably married Julia, the second wife of uh, Larry, mm -hmm. and they move into what we learn is um, Larry's mother's dilapidated house. It, the, cat, the kitchen's crawling with maggots, you know, like yeah. everything's just falling apart. Mm -hmm. I actually think that's, that's meant to indicate that it's been a long time since Frank, because when Frank was there, he was probably like leaving food and stuff out, and then when yeah. the Cenobites killed him, that just left it all to rot. The house is also full of some really awesome, uh, kitschy Christian art, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a couple, there's an electric Jesus, uh, more than one. And uh, Larry instantly says to, to Julia, don't worry, none of this stuff means anything to me. It'll go right in the trash heap or whatever. Um, and then where do we go from there, Kit? Um, well, there's uh, apparently... You know they're moving in and stuff, um, and there's some some racy photographs of Frank. He's been, he's mm -hmm. been using this as yeah. a sex den. He's been bringing the babes over here, uh, and he's been uh, laying some pipe apparently. Um, and this triggers in Julia some some memories. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I think Larry tries to oh that's my uh, that's my wild brother. Mm -hmm. uh, triggers some memories in her because she has met Frank before um, in uh, actually a lover's embrace. Um, a week before the marriage to Larry. Before the marriage to Larry. Frank is all about it. And I'm guessing, I don't know, from the course of uh, Julia's actions throughout the rest of the film, he uh, he has some really good dick because she she does. You, <laughs> Graham is grimacing in, in agreement with my, uh, with my statement there because, man, she does everything for this guy. I think she's really, like, really welcome, did. yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that... Um, I want some more. Some more of that D. Hmm. Uh, so they... And it's, uh, these photographs, they're all, they're all like very well composed, and they're all like... Black and white. Are, like, and they're not... Yeah, half of them are like rough sacks. They're like, I, he's with like men and women. And, uh, but the other thing, too, is that he must have hired a photographer for it because you don't yeah. see the arm. They're not selfies. They're just like... No. Yeah, so... Unless there's a timer on that camera. Hmm. Like so back, a fetish magazine shoot or something yeah, like he that. Yeah, he maybe he maybe had like a 10-second timer. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to say, Kit, on to your point of like uh, Frank's got a good D. Um, so that, that ties into the title of the movie. Originally, Clive Barker wanted to call the film The Hellbound Heart like the novella, but the studio didn't like it. So during filming, he asked the crew what they thought would be a good title, and a 60-year-old female crew member responded, what a woman will do for a good F. Um, I'm telling you, that's basically what the movie is about, and she'll yeah. do a lot, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, that's as the other interesting the thing we should point out is that a lot of people think that Pinhead is the Hellraiser of the title, 
but it's actually Frank and Julia are both. Are, well, Julia specifically is the Hellraiser. She is the one that like, like raises Frank back from being. Oh, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We'll we'll get there. Well, so we're almost there. Yeah. So it's move-in day, and uh, it turns out that Larry's daughter Kirsty has has uh, come into town. I don't know if she's she's going to live there close by to her father. Uh, she's got her own room. She's going to like find a job, and so she. Uh, um, she uh, she comes by, and uh, they're trying to get in a ma- the master bedroom mattress, which is a little too big to co- to get in. But Larry, he's trying his best. He's trying his best. He's helping the moving guys, and he basically cuts his his hand on a nail. Now at this point, Julia is having a flashback up in the uh, the attic, which is where Frank got eviscerated by the Cenobites. She remembers that day. Mm-hmm. And when uh, Larry goes in he spills some blood in the attic and the blood gets sucked into the boards. And then the, the basically starts to reanimate from almost nothing. What was left of Frank. Uh, so we see a lot of gooey grossness happen here. I love how gross this movie is with its effects. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, yeah. the resurrection of Frank is just gross. Yes, Kit. Even, uh, even at the, uh, beginning when he first opens the trap or whatever the mm-hmm. box uh and then the hooks just immediately go into his skin and then his skin looks yeah. like this like old like cheap leather or something like that yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just gets yeah. ripped so disgusting uh and yeah also larry is apparently very afraid of blood i don't know why forget what that's called um but he'll mm-hmm. faint if he at sight of blood this never actually becomes a plot point later yeah but, that was a really gnarly cut it yeah, wasn't it was. entirely cut, and it bleeds everywhere, and his blood is very goopy. It's a very yeah. goopy blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was weird. I, th- I was thinking about, because the, the Ringer had an article recently on, like, why does blood from the 1970s in movies look different than it does in the 80s? And it turns out that, like, um, basically the 3M Corporation produced blood by, like, the, by, like, the 150 gallons at a time, and that's what it looked like. And it didn't photograph very well, which is why it always kind of turned out a little pastel. And I think this might've been the last film to use it because in that scene, it looks very like chalky almost, but then later on it gets dark. Yes, Kit? Also, we forgot to uh, point out the, the clever uh, editing here that goes on while Julia is remembering uh, cheating basically on her, her uh, fiance mm-hmm. a week before the marriage with his brother of all things. Mm-hmm. Uh, while she's uh, remembering the heat of passion uh, is when uh, Larry is moving the mattress up and he a big nail is sticking out, which uh, which cuts him. So it's uh, mm-hmm. the whole nailing, the whole nail double entendre, which mm-hmm. seems to be very intentional. I'm not trying to make a joke here. Uh, I feel yeah, like yeah. you're really on the nose. And also the mattress symbolism. Exactly. He's moving the mattress. He hits a nail. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. Um, uh, those Those movers are really lecherous as well. Oh, they're awful! Yeah, yeah. they lair at Julia, and then Kirsty shows up, and they lair at her, and they're like, "I can see she gets her good looks from her mother." And and Larry, I love Larry's response, which shuts him down, and he just goes, "Her mother's dead." <laughs> but this is uh, was also strangely true because I watched Poltergeist a few other days. We talked about it on the other show, but uh, they've got uh, construction workers that work for. His- thing are uh hooting and like raising their eyebrows at a 16 year old daughter and they don't get fired or anything it's so well, crazy if you listen to a, if you listen to a lot of pop songs there's so many odes to like 16 year old girls that it's, it's yeah. gross 
Yeah. I also should point out that like we, you know, we live a little sh- bit of a sheltered life here in Toronto. Uh, when I was in New York uh, a few years ago, walking around, uh, my female friends got cat. I was shocked at how much cat calling went on in New York City. I was like, how do you, how do you think this is going to work? Just shouting a random, like lecherous comment at a woman walking by. Hey, yo, baby. Kind of like that. <laughs> my favorite response was like this one guy yelled at one of my friends like, hey, come over here and talk to me. I'm like, that's not even clever. And his follow-up was, I got a job. There you go. Yeah. Laying out the uh, resume, laying out the uh, skills. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I work at Burger King. It's a job. Um, he didn't say that, but he could have. So at this point, uh, Kirsty drives Larry to the um, hospital to get looked at. And this is when Julia meets Frank. Uh, or no, well, is that later on? No, that's later on because uh, pretty much a quick cut to a dinner party, maybe the following day or two yeah and uh, everybody's having it's some like a housewarming yeah yeah housewarming party that's where the uh the guy i don't know if it's christy's uh boyfriend i guess he's yeah steve who's he, i should point out steve he's is kind of just useless he's like smoking like his cigarettes almost out and then he like puts it into his mouth and then takes it back out with his lip and then she's like oh she like swoons over this trick um oh his mouth tastes like an ashtray and yeah, Larry's talking about, oh, maybe he should sue or something like that. Or he's, mm-hmm. some jokes are being had. Uh, and Julia's, uh, she's she's not feeling it. She wants to go to bed early. Yeah. Uh, so, this is when she meets Frank, right? She goes upstairs and encounters yeah, she hears him. Here's something. She goes upstairs because there's like three levels to this uh, building they're in. Mm-hmm. So there's the, the bottom floor, middle floor, and then the like the attic sort of floor. Mm-hmm. And she goes up there, she hears something, and then, yeah, it's the ghoulish half-form of Frank, still with his golden voice. Yeah. Uh, crawling around, no legs, just uh, barely together. Chunks yeah. Of flesh. It's goopy. Like, I love how this slime drips off oh, of him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so you know, good. It almost looks like a bug, like, when he's, like, you know, and the blood makes contact with the floor, like, you mm-hmm. see these limbs just forming, and it just looks like a giant spider, like... Yeah, the resurrection yeah. of Frank Frank is gnarly. Yeah, mm-hmm. but cool as hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, basically, Frank, you know, tells Julia not to look at him, and that uh, he needs her to bring him men. And we have more flashbacks showing that she basically like he needs blood. He needs Maybe. blood. Yeah. And uh, what happens is we see flashbacks where Julia says to Frank. I'll do anything just to keep you around or something. And that plays back in her mind. And she decides like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to go give this, I'm going to give this murdering uh, for my, my, uh, my husband's dead brother, undead brother, just so I can get with him again because it was so good. Um, (laughs) For one, one last, uh, one last deed. (laughs) Yes, Phil. Well, you know what? Like her strategy is pretty good because she, picks like the sleaziest most uh mediocre men she comes across yeah what yeah. i wrote down um what was it uh They're probably like cheating on their families but like their families yeah, don't yeah. have enough to put out at a... like n- 11 a.m <laughs> on a thursday where's uh, dad yeah. two weeks ah, he's probably just gambling again mm-hmm. yeah oh i i said it so julia preys upon the finest yuppie scum to feed to frank <laughs> Because that's proper 80s yuppie scum. Just guys oh, yeah. in boots, drinking at lunch, talking to strange women they don't know, going back to their houses. Um, the so most yeah. average-looking men as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
we'd all be screwed. Um, uh, I do have to point out though, Julia gets a much better hairdo in the set in Hellraiser too. I, I was my letterboxed review hints at that because she she basically has a mullet in the first one, and then the second one yeah. it's like she gets yeah. a much better makeover. It's yeah. one of those like '80s lady mullet kind of things. Yeah. That was popular from like 1986 to late 1986, and that's yeah, like, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I also like Julia's dedication to the hammer. She just sticks to the hammer as her murder yeah. weapon. She's like, I'm not going to go for something that it'll be easier. I mean, killing somebody with a hammer has got to be tough. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so... I think you would think a knife, but no. No, I think a hammer just says blunt force to knock them out, and then you can just pound away at them until they're done. But <laughs> um, you heard me. Also, uh, note the uh, desiccated corpses after Frank has sucked out all the essence from them are pretty gnarly and awesome as well. Just yeah. the uh, horrified, like, uh, munch-type screams, mm-hmm. faces. And she almost gets caught by Larry at least at, by, at least at one point. Oh, yeah. But then, yeah. Uh, but then Frank just tells her, you got to keep going and keep doing this. And he actually he starts to build up more and more of a body. Um, still slimy as, and gross as hell. And uh, yes, Kit? Well, that's another thing, by the way. So the first two uh, kills pretty much uh, restore him, his like vascular system. He's able to walk upright, looks uh, humanoid. And then it's like... He gets his taste buds back. And there's like nothing. Two other guys and there's like no more definition coming. It's like he's still... Well, I think he's getting more of his internal organs back, more of his like his taste buds, more of his actual like living senses. So, because he even says like, "I feel pain. My nerve centers are coming. My <laughs> my uh, nerves are are starting to work again." Um, but no visual changes. No, no. Well, I mean, it's like a house. Like when you're building a house, like it always takes so long to do like the final little small things. Like building a frame and an outside is quick. But then you got to like run the wires and put up the drywall and do all that. It takes forever. Um, You've made a hell of an analogy there, sir. Mm-hmm. Oh, because I've built a house before and it's not fun. Um, okay, so where do we go from there? So we'll, we'll skip ahead. Basically, Christy and, Christy and Steve have kind of had like a, a fling going on. Although Steve is, is a useless character, like I said before. He doesn't really show up much. Um, and even in the sequel, like he doesn't even get like uh, he's not even, not even seen on screen. Kirsty literally just says, "We're Steve," and the guy at the hospital, <laughs> says, he's fine. The end. That's all there is to know yeah. about Steve in, in part two. Um, Glad and, he makes it. We yeah. let him go. Mm-hmm. And basically, uh, at a certain point, Larry is about to to realize that that Frank is up there in the house and. Julia seduces Frank, to, or no, sorry, seduces Larry to try and get him away from there. But then it turns out Frank is hiding out in, in their bedroom while they're about to do it. And in order to get uh, Frank not to kill Larry, Julia basically has to stop having sex with him. It's very awkward, very gross, but also that's the good thing about Clyde Barker, combining the, the disgusting and the violent with the sexual. Um, and so this prompts uh, Larry to ask Kirsty, like, hey, can you just stop by, talk to Julia, see what's going on? I don't think the move is, is, has gone well for her. She's acting all weird and distant. Uh, and so Kirsty goes by and she sees Julia bringing another man in. And this is when uh, basically, we also should point out that 
the reason why Julia, not the sole reason, but like one of the reasons why she keeps bringing men to, to kill for Frank is that Frank says, we have to get out of here because the Cenobites will soon know I'm gone. And this is where we first hear the word Cenobite. And it's basically him mm-hmm. saying like, they're the ones that did this to me that ripped me to, to shreds. We got to get out of here. I um, love how Julia is like, all right, I'm going to continue on this path. This sounds like a good mm-hmm. deal uh, yeah. for, for a bit more uh, loving. Mm-hmm. Another roll in the hay with Frank. Yeah, uh, I will deal with this demonic shit and also killing a bunch more men. Mm-hmm. And we should point out that um, what happens? We should point out that uh, that Julia starts off at least somewhat uh, timid when it comes to killing people, and somewhat like, "Oh my god, I'm in this horrible situation." Mm-hmm. But then she eventually just dives right in. Like she's still got a stomach of iron, even on that first kill. She's covered in blood. She just washes yeah. it off. She's a bit upset. Yeah. Just like Larry, bring me some, bring me a brandy or something like that, and she. Okay, sorry, Phil. Yes, Phil. Well, given how miserable her marriage is, it's kind. Of, she she eases into it quite. Like you know what, this is a fair enough compromise. I'll murder her. I could never quite get a good read on Larry whether he was likable or not. Sometimes he seemed like a real asshole, and then other times he just seemed like a kind of a dorkish, normal guy. I I think he was a little bit in between. I do I did note that he loves his boxing. Like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. sitting on the couch doing the whole, like, ooh, ah, ee, ah. <laughs> Afraid of blood, loves boxing, though. Loves the boxing. Um, and so Julia spots, or sorry, Kirsty spots Julia bringing a man in, and she sneaks inside and sees Frank kill this man, and she's like, oh, my God, this is insane. Oh, we, get- did, uh, we did skip over that. Did, did we uh, skip over the part where she's uh, about to make love to uh, Larry? Because she's distracting him. He was uh, going to go check out the attic. And she's like, no, no, I, I want to, I want you. Yeah. No, no, we uh, talked about it. Oh, did we? And then um, Frank kind of stalks in behind. He's in the mm-hmm. closet and he comes out and he's like cutting something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's cutting a rat. And yeah, Larry is further confused mm-hmm. by her rapid yeah. mood switch. That's what, that's what prompts him to ask Kirsty yeah. to go and check up on her. And so Kirsty takes the, uh, the lament configuration. Frank... Frank right away is trying to be like, oh, Kirsty, you've grown up into such a beautiful woman. Come to daddy. Like, no ease in whatsoever. Just sort of like, hey, I'm your biological uncle. Let's get horny. Like, Come gross. to daddy. Yeah, just right away. Yes, Phil? I got the impression that maybe Frank molested her or tried to molest her when she was younger. I thought possibly, but I also think that maybe he just, like, Larry kept uh, her as far away from Frank as possible. Yeah. I don't know. I was like, I picked up on that this time. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, I don't know if that was already on my brain because I was listening to this analysis of The Exorcist discussing uh, the character that's clearly based on um, on uh, old rapey McDirector, um, Roman Polanski. Um, yeah. Who uh, he, uh, basically, there's a character in The Exorcist based on Roman Polanski and it's implied in the novel, The Exorcist, that he was molesting Reagan. And it's allegedly tinted to in the movie. And then I was like, oh, crazy. Like, I wonder, like, was this, like, reference in reference to the trial? And then I looked at the trial and I was like, oh, no, it actually happened way after The Exorcist movie came out. It turns out William Peter Blatty just met Roman Polanski and was like, this creep is, is diddling creep. kids. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but back to this movie. Um, yeah, yeah, it's implied. It's definitely there. Like I picked up on it this time. I didn't pick up on it when I was younger when I watched it, but this time mm-hmm. I definitely picked up on it. Um, she steals the lament configuration, uh, runs outside, 
runs away and then kind of collapses and winds up in the hospital. Now, but what, where have we skipped ahead? She, she throws like the she throws the Cenobite Rubik's cube out the window. Yeah, grabs it oh, right, right. Then... Yeah, she grabs it when she runs out. Yeah, no, no, we 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 done. Like, no! Yeah, we're like she we got to Larry being killed. I feel like no, we no, no. That's, that's 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 later. That's later. Hasn't been killed yet. No, no, we're almost there. Don't worry. So she wakes up in the hospital, and was it just me, guys, or did the doctor seem really like accusatory of like? Like, you passed out. I think the police will have some questions for you. It's like, dude, she just yeah. passed out. Yeah. And then, uh, and then he's like, the only thing we found with you was this. And they hand, uh, he hands her the lament configuration. And she starts trying to, to figure out the puzzle. And where do we go from there, Phil? I'm also, also just reminded, like, I need to jump back, like, 15 minutes or so. Because she gets a job at a pet store. Oh, right. And she sees this ominous, vagrant-looking Alan Moore-type dude. <laughs> He's eating bugs. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she tries to kick him out, but then he vanishes. He vanishes. Mm-hmm. The interesting that- thing is that that character actually shows up in the sequel as a severed face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, getting back, so... She's, yeah, in the hospital, and she solves the cube, and then mm-hmm. that uh, monstrous Cenobite starts uh, chasing her. I think it's referred to as the engineer or something. Yeah, and the script, so basically, uh, the wall opens up, and there's a, uh, a hallway, a, mm-hmm. a very dark, demonic, gothic hallway that she goes down, and then she, this creature that looks like a, well, its head is at the base of it, at the bottom of its body, mm-hmm. and this weird stinger thing is at, at the top. It's vaguely phallic, like a lot of Clive Barker stuff. Yes. And uh, it chases her down the hallway until she gets away. And um, then the actual Cenobites show up and they essentially lay out their whole thing of like, we are demons to some and angels to others. We like experience, we explore the, the, the whole spectrum of experience, of physical experience in ways that no one on earth can ever understand. Um, and it's interesting because in the novel, it says that they're like experimenting on these people. Mm-hmm. And with Frank, um, the he actually isn't, it's not that he is like this thing that materializes that basically like when uh, Larry spills the blood of Rory in the, in the novel, it actually opens up a schism, a doorway between um, our world and the Cenobites world. And Frank, whatever's left of Frank just crawls through and it's so, he's so emaciated because he's had like a lot of his skin and body removed but he's still alive because he's being tortured by the Cenobites. Um, and so this is when Kirsty throws some logic at them, like, hey, uh, Frank Cotton was someone that you, that also called you, he's escaped. And they're like, what? If you bring him to us, well, then we'll talk. And Nobody where escapes us. Yeah. yeah. Doug Bradley in his awesome voice. Where do, we, where do we go from there, Phil? This is when, now this is when Larry dies. Yeah, okay. I uh, now I understand what happened. Yeah, so you know, she's able Kirsty's able to live another day and she comes back home and she seems oddly not that suspicious that um there's something off about her father that given that like he's bleeding out of like ten different oh. spots in his head. Wait, we 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 forgot one little bit. So Larry came home. Mm-hmm. And Julia let him upstairs, and then we see someone walking down, like cracking their hands, and we think it's Frank. 
Mm-hmm. But it turns out that it's actually Larry, and this is odd. And so mm-hmm. Kirsty comes into the house and um, run, comes into runs into Julia first, and she's like, "I need to t- speak to my father. I need to tell him what you're doing." And then her father comes out, and he's just like, "Oh no, Julia told me everything. It's okay. Frank is gone." Yes, Kit. Yeah, I just assumed that she was still in shock. Which yeah. is why she noticed the uh, like the gore coming out of the sides of his, the seams on his face and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and how strange he was acting. Like she was just shocked and kind of overcome with relief because she thought he was dead. She's been having these nightmares. I don't know if we mentioned that. We didn't. Oh yeah, yeah. Her, her father dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, her boyfriend even gets Steve. Even gets what's his name? Steve. Steve. He gets a nightmare as well, and I I never understood why that happens. Mm. Uh, uh, but we should point out that so uh, Frank is wearing Larry's bot like skin as a suit, but and I and total props to Andrew Robinson. He his switch into playing Frank, it seemed mm-hmm. no, like yeah. really really good. Like yeah, his yeah. acting is so good, and he um, basically starts going to the whole like come to daddy. It's Frank and daddy's body, and this but. Our heroes, the Cenobites, show up. Well, now, first they they're like, she's like, I need to see Frank, and then they show yeah. him a body, the body, yeah, just but the exactly uh, the dad's body, rip- but he doesn't know it. And then the door shuts on her. They like shut the door. I don't know mm-hmm. what happens. And then the Cenobites kind of appear, and they're pissed. Yes, Phil. Well, the Cenobites appear because Frank confessed to escaping the Cenobites, and yeah, but if, and they but but the thing is, Kirsty hadn't put it. Sorry, we're still we're bouncing around. Kirsty didn't put it together yet because Kirsty, um, because the Cenobites say, "Bring us the man who did that," and they point to the body yeah. on the floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she still thinks that it's Frank on the floor, and she's like, yeah. "No, you can't. He's my father." And then yeah. she runs downstairs, and then it's when it's downstairs when uh, Frank inadvertently stabs Julia and is getting yeah pervy mm-hmm. on. Kirsty, that she realizes, oh my God, it's you're not my dad, you're Frank, and then she brings Frank into the room with the Cenobites, and the also, Cenobites, yes, not upset at all about stabbing Julia. Actually, no. I, oh good, I I was going to do this anyhow, so no big no biggie. Well, I wanted to point out, it sounds like nothing personal or yeah, something like yeah, that. Nothing personal. Oh, business, Julia. <laughs> yeah, nothing personal. Like Pagoda. But the the interesting thing is that. Um, is is that for a guy who's so free love free wheeling, he gets really upset when he thinks that Julia is going to sleep with Larry. Like yeah, really her is, husband. What, yeah. Are you, what are you doing, sleeping with your husband who you are cheating on? Who like, hey, I'm the guy you're cheating on him with. You can't sleep with that guy. That's just that's just gross. Um, just a controlling he, asshole. He's my brother. Yeah, yuck. Um, so Frank gets lured in. <laughs> to the Cenobites room and they tear him apart. And like Pinhead says that awesome line of this isn't for your eyes. Yes. Kirsty is like, Oh, I got to get out. And so they, and they, sh- they rip. Oh my God. It's so gory and so awesome how they rip <laughs> Frank to pieces. And he I even forgot. turns to Kirsty and says, Jesus. Wept. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but uh, while his face is being torn apart, I swear to God with his, uh, his like plastic face, stretched thin and stretched kind of in a weird way mm-hmm. he honestly looked a little like donald trump don't you guys think like that yeah, a little sure oh yeah totally mashed um, up face 
unnatural. Yeah. And so Kirsty heads outside, uh, leaves the room, and but the female Cenobite's there, and and uh, she says, like, but I, I, I brought you Frank, and, and she's like, you know, well, we... Oh, we're we, leaving so soon? Yeah, yeah, basically something like that. Like, oh, we want you too. And then she's like, oh my god, I can't trust these demonic creatures. Um, and so she starts solving the puzzle, which causes them to disappear. One by one, Pinhead disappears, the female Cenobite disappears. It's a good and, thing she's a uh, ace. Oh, yeah. just kind of. Uh, yep, she's one of just zapping like, them away. Yeah, <laughs> she says to Pinhead, "Go to hell." Yeah, go to hell. Although yeah. Butterball does not get zapped, I'll note he just gets. No, uh, he gets. Yeah, the the house is being kind of destroyed from within, and they even at one point the engineer comes back. Oh, so Steve is at the door, and he's just there to be like he's basically shows up to be like, "Why are you overreacting?" Well, <laughs> there's demons everywhere. We're gonna run out of time soon, guys. So if we get cut off, we'll just pick it up again. But because um, so the house is collapsing while Steve shows up. Yeah, and he's just like, "Why are you overreacting?" Um, and Basically, he sees the engineer as well. She solves the puzzle one more time, and the engineer disappears. The butterball gets smushed by the house. Chatterer disappears. And then they leave to go to a, uh, it's like a, an outdoor hangar with a bunch of fires in it. And so they throw the lament configuration into the fire, but then out of the darkness comes the, the creepy guy from the pet store yeah. who was eating the bugs. He reaches into the fire lights himself on fire, picks up the lemon configuration, then turns into like a skeletal flying demon. Mm -hmm. Demon fast, yeah. Yeah, and then he flies away, and then we are left at seeing the um, lemon configuration on another table being offered up to another poor soul. And that was Hellraiser. Uh -huh. Woo! Good All set right. up anthology. Yeah, it's the same vendor. And we yeah. saw Souls a thing to Frank at the beginning. And right. So what gonna, is your pleasure? And yeah. that's so, it. So we're going to take a brief break while I reboot this, uh, this, this Zoom meeting, and uh, we'll be right back. Okay, so welcome back. So it was just a brief break while we uh, rebooted the Zoom machine. So I'll start getting into my notes about Hellraiser. Guys, feel free to chip in whenever you want. Um, so the film was produced by Christopher Figg. It was his first producing gig, and he would go on to produce Hellraiser 2 and 3, as well as a music video for Motorhead's song Hellraiser. Um, nice. We should also point out that it was after Hellraiser 3 when the Weinsteins got a hold of the Hellraiser rights. And that's when we got Hellraiser 4, Hellraiser 5, Hellraiser 6, Hellraiser 7, Hellraiser 8, Hellraiser 9, Hellraiser 10, and Hellraiser 11. I think we're at 11. Um, uh, but he was also... So Christopher Figg was also the executive producer... For the Canadian film, Jacob Tutu meets the Hooded Fang. Mm. He also was the executive producer for 2018's Mandy. Oh. AKA, I know, AKA the greatest film of the 21st century so far. He produced the film Dog Soldiers, which was which we should really do on the podcast. I love the film Dog Soldiers. The Neil Marshall movie? Yeah, Neil Marshall's first film. Um, before this film, Clive Barker had only directed two short films. Uh, and the film made 20 times its budget back. It, it cost just under a million dollars and it grossed 20 million at the box office. Um, Barker spoke, spoke fondly about the filming. He stated that his memories of production were of unalloyed fondness. I don't know what that means. The cast treated my ineptitudes kindly and the crew were no less forgiving. Barker no alloys, Graham. Yeah. 
Barker admitted his own lack of knowledge on filmmaking, stating that he didn't know the difference between a 10 millimeter lens and a 35 millimeter lens. And if you show me a plate of spaghetti, I'd, I'd probably say it was a lens. Um, after filming, New World convinced Barker to relocate the store to the United States, which we discussed before, which required them to overdub pretty much all the, the British accents in the film, such as Frank Ch or Sean Chapman as Frank. The film had two editors, Richard Marden, and there was an uncredited editor as well who worked on it, Tony Randall. So the interesting thing about that is that Tony Randall actually went on to direct Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. Christopher Young did the score for Hellraiser. He would also return to do the score for Hellraiser 2, and it's long been thought that Danny Elfman ripped him off. Uh, yes, Bill? Yeah. Well, Coil, the, the industrial band Coil were originally hired. Uh, like Clyde Barker initially wanted Coil to do the score for mm -hmm. Hellraiser, and Coil did compose the score for Hellraiser, and you can listen to the Coil score for Hellraiser, which is really good. Yeah. But uh, they... But I think new the producers wanted, or at least New World wanted something mm -hmm. a little more conventional. So they went with the Christopher Young score. And the Christopher Young score is very good in its own right. Yeah, it's a great score. And especially the score for Hellraiser 2 is actually better, I'd, I'd argue. Yeah. And uh, and like when you listen to that back to back with like the Batman soundtrack, it's yeah. it's like Danny Elfman just was like, I will I will do that. Um mm -hmm. so he uh so christopher young also scored another film that we watched on the podcast which was copycat from way back mm. when oh wow yeah and he's still doing scores to this day he recently did the score for the 2019 adaptation of pet cemetery mm. um now a lot of people repeat the story that the original title for the film was sadomasochist from hell or alternately sadomasochist from beyond the grave this is not true. It's just a joke that Clive Barker told in the 1980s that stuck. Um, and then we discussed how, like, I think it was Christopher Fig that came up with the name Hellraiser because uh, they were just struggling to find a good title for the movie. Uh, so the film faced some censorship from the Motion Picture Association of America. Initially, it was rated X, so they had to trim some scenes. They also really had to change the tone of certain scenes, especially the flashbacks to Julian Frank's affair, Mm -hmm. um, initially, so I'm going to quote Clive Barker directly here. He said, well, we did have a slight problem with the eroticism. I shot a much hotter flashback sequence than they would allow us to cut in. Mine was more explicit and less violent. They wanted to substitute one kind of undertow for another. I had a much more explicit sexual encounter between Frank and Julia. And they said, no, let's take out the sodomy and put in the flick knife. Sodomy. Okay. Yeah, there was butt sex. Um, they also could only would only allow two rare thrusts and not three, because apparently that was the line that was crossed. Um, interestingly enough, after Hellraiser 2, the original plan was for Julia, played by Claire Higgins, to carry on the series as the main antagonist and would reduce the Cenobites to just background characters. Mm -hmm. However, fans just took to Pinhead so much. She was the breakout character. And also Higgins were, uh, declined to return to the series. Like I said before, she hated horror films. And she's never even seen them, Hellraiser, Hellraiser 2, despite it being the thing she's most known for. So the studio had planned on casting stuntmen as the Cenobites to save on production costs. However, Clive Barker insisted on hiring actors, and he reasoned that even if the actors did not speak and appeared under heavy makeup, their body language would still convey a personality. During production, Doug Bradley was essentially acting blind as he couldn't see through the black contact lenses. Uh, uh -huh. Yeah. 
So like he was always missing his marks and that's why he doesn't move much because he couldn't move and he stared so intently because he didn't know where he was looking. Uh, he was originally offered the choice of roles between one of the mattress movers and the lead Cenobite. He initially thought it would be important as a new film actor that he should, the audience should see his face and he pretty much nearly turned down the lead Cenobite role as Pinhead and it wasn't until Clyde Barker, who was a school, like they were actually school friends, um, convinced them, no, you should be Pinhead. You should be the guy, the lead Cenobite. It took six hours to apply the prosthetic Cenobite makeup to Doug Bradley. Um, and he's done so many of these films, he got so used to the makeup that he would actually assist the makeup team in putting it on when there was a new makeup team on one of the sequels. And in some of the Hellraiser sequels, he's actually credited as assistant makeup artist. So Doug Bradley revealed in an interview that he asked Clyde Barker, how should he play Pinhead? Barker told him to think of a cross between an administrator and a surgeon who's responsible for running a hospital where there are no wards, just operating theaters, as well as being the man who wields the knife. He's the man who has to keep the timetable going. He also revealed that the two also decided early on that Pinhead was formerly a human. So a line from one of Clive's, play, uh, Clive's plays swam into my mind. I am in mourning for my own humanity. At this point, there was no backstory for the character, but I discussed this with Clive and we had agreed that he had once been a human, but whether this was yesterday, last week, last year, 10, 100, 1,000 years ago, I didn't know, I didn't need to. Sufficient to have that idea lodged in my brain, a perpetual unconscious grieving for the man he had once been, for a life and a face he couldn't even remember, and a frozen wow. grief. I felt now that Pinhead, Pinhead existed in an emotional limbo, limbo where neither pain nor pleasure could touch him. A pretty good definition of hell for me. So that's, that's where he was coming from. Um, we should also point out that Lance Hendrickson was offered the role of Frank, but he turned it down. Uh, he actually did go, up to, go on to appear in one of the Hellraiser sequels, which is 2005's Hellraiser Hell World, which I have on Blu-ray here somewhere. I've got Hellraiser 4, 5, 6, and 7 all on Blu-ray. I should watch them at some point. I haven't yet. I've only seen, well, I've seen up until part six, Hellseeker. And then I watched one of the later sequels. I watched the sequel that the Weinsteins produced literally within less than a month of from having the script written production to release. It was the sequel they did just so they could keep the rights. Doug Bradley isn't, isn't in it as Pinhead. And pretty much the entire movie is set in a living room with Pinhead right. standing behind a wall being like, I'm waiting to be called. Yeah, not so good. So let's uh, continue with my notes here. I'm almost at the end. Andrew Robinson, who played Larry, convinced Clive Barker to change the scripted final line, which was F-U, to, to the line which was actually shot, Jesus wept, which I actually think is a much better ending line than F-U. Yes. Um, and finally, when Clive Barker first showed the film to his mother, she cried tears of joy upon seeing her son's name in the opening credits. He leaned over to her and whispered, that that would be the happiest she would be for the next two hours. <laughs> and that's all my background. Did you guys have any other uh, notes or, or thoughts on Hellraiser? Uh, well, what, did, what did we think of the individual Cenobites? Well, you covered everything. Yeah. What did, what did we think of the looks of the individual Cenobites? How did we rank them? Uh, I guess, I mean, what? Not necessarily I mean, Pinhead on top. I mean, he's got the no iconic. No way, no way. Oh, Pinhead's number one. I love the look of Pinhead. Chatterer's my favorite. Chatterer is pretty awesome. And they, they basically ripped that off in Lord of the Rings. Um, one of the um, 
black I, it's not even a uh, orc really maybe it's a lead lead orc of some sort it has same sort of look old back skin like surgically and teeth teeth showing that would surprise um, me if peter jackson ripped it. i mean peter jackson knew all the all the horror films of the 80s so like he probably lifted i know he lifted the um <clears throat> the horse riders that pursue the frodo or whatever it is in lord of the rings they're based on the um the dead from the tombs of the blind dead series oh okay yeah i mean that is all that's also described in the book of course as yeah, well. yeah well i'm the, sure uh, tolkien stole it from tombs of the blind the dead. black riders yeah. yeah uh the ring race um what well, about you, Kit? Is Chatter number one for you? Chatter is up there. Of course, Butterball's the uh, top of my list. <laughs> his, uh, his sunglasses, his sort of welder's glasses that he wears, yeah. his little hat, uh, and just his uh, sort of, like, he doesn't even say anything. I don't even think he gets any lines. Neither does Chatter. No. Uh, it's, uh, it's Pinhead and the, I guess she's only known as the female Cenobite. Yeah. Uh, played by Grace Kirby. Um, they're the only ones who ever do any speaking. Um, her look is just kind of, she's got some metal rod going through her head and then her, her neck is open to reveal, I don't know, a, a spiky second mouth or something. Yeah. So the crew on set nicknamed her character Deep Throat. <laughs> it was, well, the, the, the opening of her neck was meant to be a, a play on the fear of, uh, that men have of a, of a woman's uh genitalia i guess makes sense yeah okay yeah it's like the teeth vagina yeah so i mean there's a lot of stuff going on here i mean clive barker clearly was digging into like he this film pushed a whole lot of boundaries which i think no one really under and i think the reason why it was able to be so violent and so gnarly and so nasty and so gross is because this the sex stuff just overwhelmed the censors and they were like cut all that out and didn't mind about the didn't really focus on the violence it was the sex that was the issue yeah, as far as like horrific elements, it really does uh, kind of bring it. Yeah. And so, Phil, you were saying that this film was initially banned in Ontario? Yeah, it was. Uh, temporarily, it was, the issue of contention was um, especially, I guess, the second scene of uh, Frank being ripped apart. And there, there also, they also had an issue with the rats being impaled on the nails. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. At least that's what Wikipedia says. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Ontario Censor Board was weird. Like They it, were really weird. So the issue of contention was, it was about like 45 seconds that had to be taken out of the movie for it to get released. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always odd looking at, because I mean, like in America, there's a, there's a national ratings board, whereas in Canada, it's every province decides for itself. Um, and so the interest, the weird thing is growing up in Newfoundland, the rating, I don't even know if there was a ratings board. Like it was just, I think it was theater to theater of like, you know, just judging who should go in to see a movie. And I always remember like the, the, the Clarenville twin cinemas where I spent a lot of, where I saw most of the movies when I was growing up in Newfoundland had the rating was general adult and adults only. <laughs> and so I would always be like, I can go to this. It's PG-13. No, it says uh, adult on it. I'm like, that doesn't mean what you think it means. I want to go see Mortal Kombat. Come on. Well, I, to go back to like the whole ratings thing, like I think I remember there was an interview. With, maybe it was even like the commentary track on Videodrome where uh, Cronenberg was mentioning like his 
issues with the Ontario Film Review Board. Yeah. Where basically, like, what their their MO then was that they didn't like something, they would just hack, they would just take out what they didn't like and just hand it back to you. It's like, this is the acceptable version we will... Uh, so they were an actual sensor board, they weren't a ratings board. Yeah. Because I know the whole thing with, with the MPAA is that they can't tell you what to remove but they will if you're a major studio release but they can't tell you what to remove because that would make them a censor so they were like oh it's the tone it's this it's that um i mean there's a really great documentary called this film is not yet rated um, yeah about that whole situation but uh but yeah it's it's like this is gnarly i mean like when i when i was a kid and i thought of horror movies just being like oh my god they must just be nothing but like torture and and horror and and craziness Mm -hmm. Hellraiser is the closest I I think I've come to seeing what I initially envisioned in my head. Yeah. Yeah. I never saw it as a kid either, but man, I do remember those uh, cover boxes. Yeah. Gnarly. I see like, you know, you'd end up seeing Child's Play and it's not that... No, it's it's tame stuff. Tame. You you even see A Nightmare on Elm Street or two, and there's some some good gore, but... uh, It's mostly cheese. Pretty silly, right? Oh, yeah. Especially A Nightmare on Elm Street. Serious kind of... um, I don't know, sort of violent horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's cool. Yeah, I'm just trying to see because I know Hellraiser yeah. two played uh, played at uh, Midnight Madness at TIFF. Mm-hmm. But I think Hellraiser one just went straight to theaters here. Roger uh, Roger Ebert did not like this movie. No, oh. he gave half star ratings to the both of them. Really. Yeah. Here, let me. Uh, it's got a bit of it here on this Wikipedia article. He's. Uh, mm. It says it's as dreary a piece of goods as has masqueraded as horror in many a long cold night. This is one of those movies you sift through with mounting dread as the fear grows inside of you that it will indeed turn out to be feature length. Oh Christ, Ebert! He really did enjoy himself sometimes. Didn't he, he? He also just I, for a guy who's like I love movies, he sure did hate them a lot. I think he just goes in a bad mood. And here he goes. This is a movie without wit, style, or reason. And the true horror is that actors were made to portray and technicians to realize its bankruptcy of imagination. I would argue you could say that about Roger Ebert's uh, screenplay. <laughs> you, are, you do love For Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens. <laughs> which he hid, like, he hid that for so many years that he wrote because uh, he wrote beneath uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens. Yeah. And if you've seen, I'll get to you in a second, Phil, but if you've ever seen Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens, and I've only said, I, I shut it off after five minutes because I'm like, I don't care that I'm a teenage boy and there's busty women dancing. This is garbage. Yes, Phil? No, but like, even if you hate Hellraiser, calling it imaginatively bankrupt is true. Oh, I know. Insane. It seems like he's just feeling himself on the uh, sort of with his, his quill in hand. Just uh, it's like I was not paying attention. To, I walked out of this movie ten minutes in, and I made probably. up this review. Yeah. Well, I feel that like like so many people uh, say that just because like have that opinion, I don't like something, therefore it is bad. And it's like taste is subjective. Like I mm-hmm. I've I've heard many people tell me how come you don't watch Game of Thrones, and it's like. I just don't like it. I'm sorry, guys. That's that's on me. I've always argued that a lot of taste is subjective, but some things are objectively bad, and if you like them, you have bad taste objectively. Like Nickelback? 
well, no, like more than like those like date movie type movies. Like, oh yeah, the, see, parody? people would be like, "Oh man, I love those," and I'm like, "You have awful taste," and this is yes. an objective fact. It's not that's creatively bankrupt. Those are really bad movies. If you like They're the movie even... White Chicks, I don't agree with you, but I but okay, um, but yeah, the date movie, epic movie, all that stuff. Meet the Spartans. All right, so uh, Phil, what are your final thoughts on Hellraiser? Hellraiser, I like with some reservations. Like it, the setup is fantastic. I really like the symbolism, like the yeah. thematic exploration, like the AIDS allegory, like mm. AIDS disease allegory. They're like they're really there's some like really striking macabre visuals mm-hmm. and uh, like really good practical effects. But then you got oh, but then you contrast that where it gets to like my reservations is that. You get some like real janky, like cheesy '80s effects, and like the last ten minutes of the movie are a real cop out. I find where like it's just, just it just wraps it up in kind of like the most convenient way possible, and I didn't care for that. Yeah, With uh, Kirsty just zapping the Cenobites. That's fair. Yeah, just random twisting of the box. She's not even looking at. Yeah. There's no way she solved that puzzle box. Yeah, it's a fair, it's a fair criticism. I don't agree with it, but it's fair. And I also kind of wish the Cenobites didn't talk as much. I, I kind of like the idea of just the Cenobites being this sort of silent, ominous presence. Like, Doug Bradley kind of sounds like a dork. Well, wait until you get to Hellraiser 5 and 6. Oh, I believe it. I believe it. Well, well he's, the, th- the interesting thing, though, is that the Cenobites are only on screen in this film for five minutes. Uh, yeah, but it feels like they're on like far longer. And yeah, know. well, the interesting they're, they're barely in Hellbound Hellraiser too as well. Yeah, even though there's like a lot of exposition to like their origin story. And yeah, and by the stuff. way, Pinhead has the greatest face turn ever in movie history in Hellraiser <laughs> too. When all of a sudden, and it's 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 wordless too, where he just turns and looks at Chenard, and you realize, oh my God, Pinhead just switched sides. He's a good guy now, mm-hmm. and then he gets taken out instantly. Um. But yeah, that's okay. Um, Kit, what are your final thoughts on Hellraiser? I liked it enough. I thought, um, you know, as I was kind of mentioning before, as far as like a, like a horror goes, this was surprisingly had some good horrific elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Cenobites are kind of a pleasure. Um, <laughs> their whole Is that deal. a pun, Kit? <laughs> yeah, not really. Not meant to be, but just uh, seeing, seeing them do their uh, kind of like, I don't know, hyper goth uh sort of thing mm-hmm. is fun um the the whole couple and stuff i mean i i kind of wrote that they they look like two characters from like a soap opera b plot just the way that kind of people talk to each other and the uh even the plot itself of the affair a week before the marriage and blah 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 of course the supernatural element makes it extreme but mm-hmm. i don't know that's it's fine it, it is what it is it's sort of just filler uh but all in all uh, I, I would have to disagree with mystery, but I think the, there's not a bankruptcy of imagination mm-hmm. here. There's some interesting things going on. Obviously, the uh, Cenobites are pretty iconic. Yeah. Man, they really burned a hole in my memory. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Um, like three and a half stars, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Kind okay. of feeling generous. I would, I would go four and a half. Wow. wow. That, yeah, that, I love this movie. I, well, I mean, you got to look at it like this, like, for like even for now even in the time we are in now it is so ferociously original a concept 
like some mm-hmm. a hedonist looking for pleasure beyond for an experience anything anything you can experience uh legally or illegally pro- probably and then like, Con- yeah, yeah sorry sorry graham but i like that he goes into it knowing that it could be extreme pain or extreme pleasure yeah. and he's like whatever man let's roll the dice yeah. and he even says like i thought i had experienced the limit and i was so wrong and it's just the the idea of of these things that aren't like they're not vampires they're not mindless demons like they do have a, a have a thing like well we'll cut you a deal if you bring us frank we might let you live um and they're 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 not part of any real agenda other than their own to continue to explore the the depth of deprav of the depths of uh of depravity that they can they can perform upon a, a, a living being so it's i i i do like i mean i take a lot of it into context i also think the film is really well put together like i do agree with phil like the ending just like where she's zapping guys with the box, which is interestingly not how she solves the problem in the end of Hellraiser 2 has a much stronger ending. I do think Hellraiser 2 is, is a much stronger film, except the only difference is that Hellraiser 2, there's no real outside world in it. Like you don't, there's no, no one walks on the street. Whereas in Hellraiser 1, like, like you, like there is a real world outside of that house. Like Kirsty walks around Mm -hmm. the docks. Like she has a job. She's on the street. uh, She sees people. But that's missed that feeling. And I always feel that, that when that's missing from a movie, when you don't have that, that, that breathing room of like, this is, there's a world beyond what's going on here. It, it kind of lessens it. And I feel that like Hellraiser one has enough of that world so that it's like, okay, this is grounded, but the fantastical does occur. And it just even the cleverness, like just the way that they resurrect Frank is just so like, it's this painful process of like, yeah forming a body and then even then it's gross like just the the slime coming off of him mm-hmm. and the idea is that he escaped too right like they mm-hmm. had him and were still i guess torturing him like it, well, I there, guess it was, there was nothing left of his body which is why they had stopped experience why they had stopped torturing him because like there was just those like at when in the film before we jump ahead to julia and larry showing up at the house when you see the the Cenobites putting his face back together on the ground, like all the guts and gore, that's what's left of him. So there's nothing left of him for them to to torture at that point. And then some molecule of him that's stuck in the board seeps up the blood from from Larry's cut and resurrects. And I I think it's it's just ferociously original. And yeah, I love it. Like even today, I watch. I'm like, oh, do I really want to sit through Hellraiser again? And I it it zipped through it for me. Like I I liked it a lot. I probably won't watch Hellraiser two tonight because I'm just uh, want to let it sit. But yeah, four and a half stars. I really love this film. And yeah, yes, Phil, you're gonna say something. Yeah, you know what? Like given how dark and gnarly it is, like it's surprisingly you know breezy and watchable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'd say the same thing about Hellbound Hellraiser two. Oh, for sure. I I it's it's a shame that Clive Barker got so like just beaten down with uh nightbreed mm-hmm. that, that that i mean that ended his directing career like after that he was just like i'm out of this uh and then of course the constant bastardization of the hellraiser series by by um landscape by um by the weinsteins is just mm-hmm. you know it is what it is well we did lord of illusions which oh, is, I about that which seems to be getting a bit of a reassessment well, the character from uh, Harry Lamore, he uh, Clive Barker established in his book, The Scarlet Gospels, mm-hmm. that Harry Lamore, the main character from Lord of Illusions, 
does live in the same world where the Cenobites exist because he actually huh. meets Pinhead in the Scarlet Gospels. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And Ebert liked Lord of Illusions, apparently. Oh, well, good for Raj. Raj, yeah, the late Raj. I feel like Raj just has like a bad day and he takes it out on the movie. It's just his yeah. Well, the, the interesting, I also think he loves just eviscerating movies too. Like, I think that's, that's, that's something that he just yeah, he loves. But the, the interesting thing is that on the Rewatchables podcast, they always quote what Roger Ebert said about a movie. And they had Quentin Tarantino on for three episodes. And by episode two, he's like, why do you always go to him? Like, why is he the barometer? Like, so yeah, it's, it's a, uh, sorry, I just got a text message. I hate that it pops up on my computer now and I can read it. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I dig it. I love this film. Roger. Did you guys like, ever, sorry. Did you guys ever watch Midnight, guys ever watch Midnight Meat Train? Yes, I no. did. Yeah. I don't know. I think he didn't direct that, but he no, wrote no. He, he wrote the script, and it was the director of the Japanese film Versus, Ryumi Kitamura. Um, and I love Versus. And he also directed, he's the director of Godzilla Final War, Wars. And that stars a, a pre fame Bradley Cooper. Yeah. Uh, and Vinnie Jones. Yeah, and Vinnie Jones. It's uh, like, I, I dig that film too. Uh, it's it's a little silly, but I like it. I remember it not being bad, but it is definitely silly, especially the title "Midnight Meat Drain." <laughs> I love it though. It's like books of blood. Like, wait, <laughs> what, is, what what do you mean books of blood? Like, how does that work? Um, I also lo- love the fact that they set a movie inside the Los Angeles subway system, which is like you know three stops. Um, so it's uh yeah, and, and that film, uh, you know, unfortunately, Midnight Meat Train didn't get a bigger release because uh, there was an executive change at Lionsgate when they were produced when they were going to release it, and he kind of killed the release to favor another movie, The Strangers. And I like The Strangers fine. Like he could have released both wide; it would have been fine. So uh, I think we've rambled on enough now about Hellraiser. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think Kit has. I don't know where Kit is right now. Hey, there's Kit. Oh, and there's little Sigourney. Keeps on jumping on my fridge, so I have to keep on stopping her from doing that. She wants to be on the fridge right now. What can I say? Yeah. All right. Careful of the fridge. Um, I don't know when we're gonna. I don't know what we're gonna. Uh, sorry, Phil, I cut you off. I don't know when we're gonna be back. We might be taking a little break. I've been cutting two episodes a week for like a month now. Um, so for death by video, I've been Phil. I've been Kit. And I've been Graham saying, please be sure to rewind. Keep watching awesome movies. Good night. Good night.